We're in the Gospel of Mark, if you'd like to open your Bible or navigate on your device to chapter 11 of the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to put in at verse 15, looking at verses 15 through 19, and then verses 27 through 33. Mark chapter 11, verse 15. The topic, Jesus overturns the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sell doves. The title of our message, When Doves Fly. Let's have... It would have been more appropriate a couple of weeks ago, but hey, what am I... Let's pray. Father, thank you for our morning. What a joy, Lord, to be together as believers, to have the Word of God in front of us so that we can read it together, study it together. Beyond that, Lord, to know that the Holy Spirit indwells those of us that are believers and that He is here in this place to be our teacher, to anoint these words to our hearts in a wonderfully and beautifully... Uh, uh, appropriate way so that we would be made more like Jesus Christ today. All of us, Lord, desire to leave this study, to leave this time of worship more like Jesus than when we came in. More your workmanship. And so do that, we pray, and we pray in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. A key factor in your company's success may be the shape and size of the conference table. According to an informal study by management consultant Ruth Hogg, there is an apparent relationship between a firm's conference tables and their productivity. The best setup, she says, is a long rectangular table. The table should be five feet wide and allow about a foot of space between individuals. While respecting personal space, that size promotes camaraderie, but it also prevents coworkers from whispering snide comments about one another. Who would do that? Certainly not me. Table sizes and shapes are more important than we sometimes realize. I don't know how many of you are old enough to remember the Paris peace talks that were designed to bring an end to the Vietnam War. The beginning of the talks were stalled for months when the United States, North Vietnamese, and the South Vietnamese leaders could not decide who should sit at the different ends of a rectangular table. They finally agreed to have a round table that was flanked by two rectangular tables. And seriously, this, this took months to hammer out. On a personal level, you may have experienced table trauma. Have you ever been to a wedding where they have assigned table seating only to wonder why you are at the very last table with the kids or surrounded by family outcasts and weirdos? <laughs> I can't tell those stories. Tables are prominent in our Bible text. Jesus goes into the temple and we read that he overturns the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. We'll discuss this event in that context, but as always, we want to discover its application for our own relationship with Jesus Christ. And to do that, I'm going to ask two questions of the text. Number one, are there tables in your life that deserve overturning? And number two, are there tables in your life that defy overturning? Let's take a look first of all in verses 15 through 19 at tables that deserve overturning. You know, the table is one of our favorite English idioms. We talk about turning the tables on someone when we get the upper hand. We talk about what someone brings to the table, referring to their contributions. In negotiations, we refer to things as either being on the table for discussion or off of the table, meaning they are non-negotiable. 
If you table something, that means you put it off for later. If everything is ready for something to happen, we call the preparation setting the table. When we're totally open and honest, we say that we are laying our cards on the table. When we're on some kind of a streak, we refer to it as running the table. Illegal or illicit activities are often labeled being under the table. As Jesus entered the temple, we could say that the tables were set for him to overturn the tables. And so let's take a look in verse 15. So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. When you compare all four of the Gospels, you'll find that Jesus overturned the tables of the money changers on two separate occasions. He did it at the very beginning of his ministry in the Gospel of John, and he did it here again at the end of his ministry. Now, we should find it interesting that of all the things that could have been the bookends for his ministry, Jesus chose the overturning of these tables. Uh, It makes it a little bit more significant than we sometimes think, and I think we'll see why in just a minute. We immediately, of course, apply this to the commercialization of the church, and, and that is a proper application. We certainly want to be careful not to make merchandise of the people of God. We don't want to see the church as an opportunity to make money. Uh, now, can you have a bookstore? Can you sell things? Can you do that? Sure. Can you take offerings? Absolutely. Can you talk about needs? Yes. We're talking about actually making merchandise of the people of God, ripping off the people of God. Give you an example. When I was at Calvary Chapel of San Bernardino years ago, we had a couple that was going to individuals in the church saying that um, they had just got a new sales job and they needed to practice their sales pitch on friends so that they could get better at it for when they went out into the field to, to actually make a sales pitch. And Christians are fairly gullible, loving people, and so they went for it. And it was, of course, much more than a practice. It was their sales pitch, and these people were uh, professional sales people. And they just went through the church, couple after couple, person after person, selling insurance, until they had exhausted that pool, and then suddenly they didn't feel led to be at our church anymore. They felt led to be at another church where they started that same process. And so that is my definition, or one way of making merchandise of the people of God. It's coming in and and taking that group of people and, and using them for your own gain. And so that's one of the things that we're talking about. But having said all that, there's something going on in the temple that was far worse than that, and we're going to see it in just a minute, so just hold on to that thought. Now, the temple here refers to the entire complex, not just the holy place and the holy of holies, which is the actual temple. A wide outer space around the entire area was called the Court of the Gentiles. It was open to Jews and Gentiles alike. Of course, a Gentile is anyone who's not a Jew. You could sometimes read the word nations for Gentiles. So anyone from a nation other than Israel uh, was was welcome in this Court of the Gentiles. A low inner wall with signs at its gates declaring that no Gentile was allowed to go beyond uh, enclosed three further courts. The first one was called the Court of the Women. So they could go further than the Court of the Gentiles, but no further than that. Then the next court was called the Court of the Israelites, into which all Jewish men might go. And it was often a place for large gatherings. 
And then there was the innermost court into which only the priests could go. That led directly to the temple itself where sacrifices according to the Mosaic law were offered. Our action takes place in the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, which had been turned into a kind of Monday sale yard with vendors of various sorts. How many of you have been out to the Monday sale recently or know what I'm talking about? I'll pray for you. It's, it's quite an experience. But this is the kind of atmosphere that was taking place in the temple. Uh, imagine us trying to have church right now at the Monday with, with vendors set up around here uh, selling their stolen, I mean, their... their uh, <laughs> their merchandise. Now, besides the money changers and the dove sellers, you could buy a lamb for your Passover sacrifice. It was a lucrative business. Pilgrims by the tens of thousands would fill Jerusalem at Passover. They'd learned, probably the hard way, that if you brought your own lamb or dove, it would not pass priestly inspection. They would find something wrong with it, and you would be left without an animal to sacrifice. Ah, but right there in that court of the Gentiles, you could buy a shiny pre-approved animal, either a lamb or a dove. Now, the cost was sky high, but you were a captive consumer with no options. Kind of like when you go to the movies. You say, are you like me? I, I kind of feel guilty bringing in outside food. Not so much guilty, but my backpack is so heavy and obvious. <laughs> I remember one time... I probably shouldn't tell the story, but I'm going to. My, my mom, she's so cute. We were going to the movies, Pam and I, and we were bringing some candies. And she goes, oh, you better not do that. I go, why? They're arresting people now for bringing in outside stuff. I go, really? She goes, yeah, I read it in the paper. Well, she read it in the National Enquirer. And, uh, but ever since then, I've been really, what's that in your pot? Nothing. I don't have M&Ms. No. But uh, we went to the movies the other night. It cost me $45 for concessions. But I will say... I love theater pizza. It's just the greatest thing. I think they take a piece of cardboard and they inject it with fat and cholesterol and trans fat, everything that's bad for you, and then they put MSG on it, and man, you are good to go. So anyway, so they had this captive audience. Now Mark limits his comments to doves because he wants to emphasize just how despicable this practice really was. A dove was the sacrifice offered by the poorest of worshipers, a person who had no lamb to bring and could not afford to buy a lamb. Nevertheless, the merchants sold overpriced doves, burdening even the poor. As far as the money changers, every male Jew 20 years or over was required to pay yearly a half shekel toward the cost of the religious services in the temple. Foreign coins with their idolatrous images were refused for this purpose, and so the money changers were in the court of the Gentiles to change the Greek and Roman coins of the pilgrims into acceptable temple currency. But of course, the exchange rate was exorbitant, 10, 15, 20% in order for you to get your money. And he, uh, verse 16, he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. So this really was like a Monday sale with lots of foot traffic and people buying and selling stuff. Maybe they had those push carts that always appear out of nowhere at parades with the cotton candy. You know what I'm talking about? The Hanford Christmas parade? You know, <laughs> cotton candy? Man, how old is that stuff? It's like 300-year-old cotton candy. It came out of King Tut's tomb, that cotton candy. Don't eat that stuff. Don't support those guys. Jesus put a stop to this traffic, and he probably did it by stationing his disciples at entry and exit points. 
And so, you know, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you have to be so flexible. I mean, you're going to the temple, you, anything could happen when you're with the Lord. And that's still true today. And Jesus, he overturns these ta- tables and, and he upsets all of that. And then he says, hey, Peter, you get down there at the main entrance. John, you and James, you sons of thunder, you get over here. I don't want anybody coming in bringing merchandise for the rest of the day. Uh, okay, Lord. And, and that's exactly what happened. Now, I said a moment ago that there was something worse about all this than the merchandising and the making profit off of the Jewish pilgrims seeking to worship God. This activity completely shut out Gentiles who came seeking to worship God. We see that in the statement of Jesus in verse 17. Then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. And so what Jesus is pointing out was that this court, this court of the Gentiles, this court of the nations, was where God prescribed that people from all over the known world could come and meet the God of Israel. Think of the Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts. He comes all the way from Ethiopia in order to encounter the God of Israel, the God that he'd heard about, the God who still was preserved in some of their lore and some of their culture. And he wanted to know, he had a hunger and a desire to meet with God. Now, he came and he left dissatisfied, but at least he had bought a scroll of Isaiah. And while he was along the road, the desert road, Philip attached himself to his, his uh, chariot, as it were, and, and he came up and he explained Jesus Christ to him and led him to faith in Christ. But there were many, many people from all over the world who would come wanting to meet this God, this God of Israel, and they would get there at Passover and they would find this bazaar going on, this carnival going on, and there was no, they couldn't get any further than that. They couldn't go to the next court where the women were allowed, the Jewish women. And so they were stuck with no one really to share with them about who Jehovah really was. And so Jesus says, this is the problem. Yes, you're merchandising, but you are blocking people from knowing the Lord. You're turning them away. Every Jew should have been incensed by what their leaders were allowing to take place in the court of the Gentiles. Instead of being the holy ground upon which non-Jews from all nations seeking the God of Israel could find him, they were surrounded by a busy marketplace that canceled out any worship. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching." Hey, scribes, hey, chief priests, look beyond your hatred of Jesus and see Isaiah and hear the word of God. What Isaiah said is not hard to understand. It's not subject to any private interpretation. It should have pierced their hearts. Jesus reached into the Bible. He grabbed Isaiah 56, 7, a scripture they were all very familiar with, and he said, guys, this is happening right now. You are the den of thieves who have changed my father's house uh, from a house of prayer. And just the word itself ought to have been powerful. It should have been a, a finger pointed at their heart, but their hearts were hard. Instead, they wanted to kill Jesus, and they would have had it not been for the people. The religious leaders were lame at a lot of things, but they were pretty good at gauging the crowds and using them to their advantage. And at this point, they thought, we're just going to have to wait. Now, the people were astonished at his teaching. They knew he was right, 
and they were rallying around Jesus because there was something about Jesus in this situation where everybody recognized that he was right and that's what should be going on in the temple. And, And so they were excited about that. And when evening had come, he went out of the city, verse 19. Jesus and the 12 spent the day in the temple all day The court of the Gentiles was cleared of buying and selling and exchanging and merchandising. It wasn't used as a kind of shortcut to get from one part of the temple to the next. I wonder, did Gentiles come in and worship God? I think we can safely assume that they did. Because word would have spread that the court had been cleared of all this and that Jesus was teaching and that there was actual worship taking place in that court. And especially if you'd come from 50, 100, 500 miles away on, on the pilgrimage of a lifetime to, to come into the temple and meet the God of Israel, you would have come back and this would have been a watershed moment in your life. Now think of it this way too. The king was there teaching. His closest followers, his disciples were there serving him. A mixed crowd of Jews and Gentiles from many nations was there to pray and to worship him. It was a little foretaste, was it not, of the future millennial kingdom of God on earth, where we are told that Jesus will be ruling and reigning from Jerusalem and that all the nations of the world will come and pay homage to him. And so it's a tiny, tiny microcosm of what is going to happen in the future. Now, when we meet as the church, there should be a foretaste of heaven. One aspect of creating such an environment is to not block folks from coming by establishing non-biblical or extra-biblical traditions or rules. Now, there's a lot of things we could, of course, talk about, but one that will resonate, I think, with us a little bit, kind of tongue-in-cheek. One thing that churches can do that I think puts people off, and that is establish either official or non-official dress codes. Uh, Obviously, we don't have too much problem with dress code here, Uh, but uh, we are a come-as-you-are church. And you've probably your friends who are unchurched, if you've invited them to church, they always ask, they call it the last one, what do I I wear to church? Because people have some idea from somewhere, you know, in caveman days, I don't know where it came from, but that you have to wear your best clothes to come to church. Now, there are churches, sadly, where you're looked down upon if you're not dressed to the nines, as it were. And I think this is just one, it's a subtle way, maybe not the most important way, but it's one that we can identify with. There are ways that churches have, and we may have some of those ways too that we have to look at, and we'll talk to the Lord about that. But you want to not put people off. You want them to be able to come in and worship God and not be put off. You should feel welcome and comfortable at church. Your only discomfort ought to be spiritual if you come under the conviction of God the Holy Spirit who, if you're not a believer, is seeking to lead you to faith in Christ, and if you are a believer, is seeking to show you something that needs adjustment. That's all right. That's the kind of discomfort you need. But other than that, we should all feel welcome and welcome one another. Now, let's carefully apply what we've seen to our own relationship with Jesus by asking metaphorically, are there tables that deserve to be overturned in my life? And before you answer that, let me say, of course there are. Of course there are, because... We are all works in progress. The only person who would say no to this is a a person who is perfect. And so if your answer to this this morning is no, you're either having an extremely good day or the work that needs to be overturned in your life is lying because you're not 
really in touch with who you are. I think it's enough to ask the question. When I was younger, I would give you all the answers to this question too and tell you where you need to change. But I think it's enough to ask the question among Christians and then I trust you to seek the Holy Spirit uh, in order to give you the answer. Uh, Gino was listening to a Bible study the other day. Actually, it was a question and answer session that had been recorded featuring Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. Uh, Some of you might be familiar with his ministry. He's uh, home with the Lord now. About 50 years ago, he was uh, one of the great American preachers and authors. And uh, at this session, uh, he was asked a question about Christian liberty. Uh, Can a Christian smoke or can a Christian drink or can a Christian go to the movies or those kinds of things? And Dr. Barnhouse had a great answer. He said he never answers those questions about Christian liberty because what the questioner is really asking him to do is be the Holy Spirit for that person. Those are questions you have to ask for yourself and no leader can really tell you how to exist in the sphere of Christian liberty. I have my answers to those questions and others. You need to have yours and you need to ask the Holy Spirit. Think of everything in your life. Is there something you want to bring to the table to show Jesus or is it likely he would overturn it because it's hindering rather than helping you in your relationship with him. You'll have time at the end of the study this morning, as we always do, to spend with the Lord. All I will say is this. It's hard to believe that since we are each far from perfect, there would be nothing that the Lord wants to show that needs to be overturned today. And so just be open to what he wants to do. Now in verses 27 through 33, are there tables in your life that defy overturning? We're deliberately skipping verses 20 through 26. We commented on them in our last study on Mark two weeks ago. Mark is giving us events in chronological order and we are taking them in logical order. And so we want to drop down to verse 27. Then they came again to Jerusalem and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. Now these three groups are the three parties that comprise the Jewish ruling council called the Sanhedrin. This was an official delegation from the highest Jewish authority. They were gunning for Jesus and so you know something is about to go down. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority to do them? It was, in fact, the job of the Sanhedrin to supervise the religious life of the Jews. It's just too bad they were corrupt and needed someone to supervise them. By what authority recognizes that Jesus either claimed to have authority or that he taught in such a way that assumed authority? And, of course, he did. Jesus went around with authority and uh, did what he did. In the recent film, Concussion, Will Smith portrays the doctor who discovers why so many NFL players are losing their minds after their careers end. One of the early criticisms leveled against his findings was that he is only a pathologist, not an authority on the brain. It was a way of trying to discredit him so that they could ignore the science. So the idea is, your science may be good, but you're, you, you shouldn't know that because you're not an authority on that, and so we don't have to listen to you. And we do this a lot in order to dismiss things that we don't want to talk about. This wasn't the first time Jesus encountered the what authority question. You remember the paralytic who was let down through the roof of Peter's house by his four friends. Uh, he said to him, not be healed. He said, your sins are forgiven. 
And then the scribes that were there in their hearts said, this man blasphemes God because only God can forgive sin. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, he said, which is harder to say, uh, your sins be forgiven or arise uh, from your bed and walk. And then he says, so that you'll know that the Son of Man has authority on earth. And he healed the man. And so Jesus uh, wasn't backing down from any claim of authority. His words and his actions spoke for themselves. If you're a doctor or a nurse or a lawyer and you move to another state, you need to become licensed or certified in that state. You need the state to validate you before you can legally doctor or nurse or lawyer anyone again. In Israel, the Sanhedrin validated you. They did not recognize Jesus as having the proper credentials. They did not recognize him as having any credentials. And so they sought to, even, even after all Jesus had done, all the miracles, all the demons that had been cast out, all the people that had been healed, all the people that had been raised from the dead, uh, you don't have any authority. And I guess they thought that he would just skulk away or that the people would say, oh yeah, you know you're right. He doesn't have his PhD or his MDiv or whatever, so I guess we can't listen to him. You need not fear intelligent people. Sure, they try to make you seem ignorant, but if they don't know the truth of the gospel, their arguments always are selfish, foolish, and absurd. Just stay simple and stick to the truth. One of my favorite times in the gospels is when the the man born blind was healed and they kept peppering him with questions and he says, guys, guys, you tell me what's going on. All I know is that I was blind, but now I see. And you know, if you're a Christian, no one can deny that. You were in spiritual darkness, and now you are in the kingdom of light. And that's a big change. That's a spiritual change, a supernatural change. And, And so don't be put down. Now, I can only speculate how long these guys debated over what to ask Jesus that could possibly trip him up. And I can only imagine how stupid they must have felt after Jesus answered them. It's like the old Chris Farley character. Stupid, stupid, stupid. Because they they just couldn't catch him. And so Jesus answered and said to them, verse 29, I will ask you one question, then you answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus is not being evasive. This is the common practice among Jews to answer a question with a question. It served to further focus the intent of the original question. I highly recommend you do this. Especially in today's post-Christian culture, a lot of the people you talk to especially people under 30, they have no understanding of church, Jesus, God, the Bible. They don't know anything. I'm not saying that to put them down. They just don't know. They have no frame of reference. And if you and I start talking to them as if we're talking to a Christian crowd, we'll just lose them. And so keep asking questions until you know what they're really asking. And then put it in plain, simple, non, uh, you know, Uh, specialized terminology that they can understand. In their deliberations, the delegation from the Sanhedrin must have contemplated potential questions Jesus might have asked. Jesus always asked questions when they asked questions. They always did this too. So they must have thought, guys, let's get together and have a mock, uh, you know, trial and, and a, a role play, you play Jesus and we'll, we'll come up with potential questions so we can be ready to answer them. Jesus' question was a thing of beauty that they had not considered. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. Just a few simple words 
But these guys were toast. This was game, set, match, turn out the lights. It's all over. The baptism of John is a summary of his entire ministry of preaching repentance and faith and baptism on account of the remission of your sins. His ministry also included being the forerunner and herald of the Messiah. He had, in fact, identified Jesus as the Messiah, calling him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Obviously, this is a brilliant question from Jesus on several levels. For one, it exposes their total inability to recognize those whose authority came from heaven. So here was their question. Who gave you this authority? And Jesus says, I'm going to ask you a question that shows that you have no idea where authority comes from. And so to even ask that question is stupid on your part because you wouldn't know authority if it hit you in the face. To ignore it, Uh, well, they had evaluated John the Baptist at one point. They went out to see John the Baptist, but they refused to say anything about John the Baptist. They just tried to ignore it. Tens of thousands of Jews went out to John the Baptist in the wilderness to hear him preach and to receive his baptism. And the religious leaders who were uh, designated with telling you if that was okay or not kept absolutely silent about it and were happy when John was finally arrested and beheaded by Herod. That's the kind of leadership they were. Highly educated, deeply credentialed idiots. They had no spiritual insight, no spiritual gifting to be leaders or to evaluate ministries. They were staring their Messiah right in the face and they had the scripture to back it up, but they could not recognize him on account of their own pride and prejudice. We sometimes make fun of seminaries. We like to call them cemeteries. And sadly, a lot of young men do go into a seminary on fire and alive towards Jesus Christ, only to graduate nearly brain dead because of their indoctrination to a particular theology and tradition. Sadly, though, too, a lot of Christians who reject formal education and claim only the anointing of God on their lives, they're not really gifted for the ministries that they're performing. There are pastors that should not be pastoring and missionaries that should not be missioning. The ideal situation, I suppose, is for a church to recognize a believer's gifts and callings and then have that person get the most best additional training that's available. When all is said and done, I'll take the gifted layman over the educated clergyman who has no gifting. One of my favorite sayings in all the Bible along these lines is something that these same Jewish leaders or men like them would say about the apostles of Jesus after his resurrection from the dead and his ascension into heaven as they went about preaching the gospel and it was just stunning to the religious leaders. At one point it says when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived they were unlearned and uh, and ignorant men. They marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And so I love that. And so the most important thing is that a person is with Jesus, that you're saved and that you discover the gifting and the calling in your life and then you add to that as much as possible. But without that, you're not gonna be able to minister. Verse 31, they reasoned among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, well, they feared the people for all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. The indication here is that they would have said from men, even though it was a lie, if it wasn't for their fear of the crowd. 
The common people in the crowd were able to see and understand spiritual truth more clearly than those who had placed themselves over them as some kind of spiritual leaders. And so the guys that were supposed to evaluate the authority of a ministry kept quiet while tens of thousands of people said, hey, we can tell this is from God. You don't need to be a genius to figure out that John the Baptist is a man sent from God. Don't underestimate your ability to see and understand spiritual truth. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. And you may not think you can articulate it as well as the next guy, but you can certainly know what you need to know. Now, they were stumped. We're not told how long they reasoned among themselves, but let's face it, they could still be reasoning among themselves and not have an answer that would exonerate them and accuse Jesus. This was, this was a, an end of debate question. And so they answered and said to Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus answered and said to them, neither am I gonna tell you by what authority I do these things. If you don't think Jesus has a sense of humor, you're missing something here. This is another nanny nanny moment. I may write a book someday in my retirement, The Nanny Nannies of Jesus. I don't think anybody would read it or buy it, but uh, I think a lot of, Jesus said, well, if you're not gonna tell me, <laughs> I'm not gonna tell you, so you guys might as well leave. <laughs> now, they were liars. They just wouldn't admit it. It would be too costly from a worldly standpoint. To acknowledge John would be to acknowledge Jesus. If you believe John was from God, why didn't you follow him and why don't you believe me? If you don't, well... You're in the vast minority because all of Israel knows that he was a man sent from God. All of us who are born again would say in a heartbeat that Jesus and his word are the ultimate and final authority in our lives. I mean, if, if, that was a, if somebody said, hey, would you take a test? It's a one-question test. Do you think Jesus Christ is the final authority in your life as a Christian? You don't even have to think about that. You don't have to put it on a scale. The answer is yes. You could summarize our theology of authority by quoting the old bumper sticker that says, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And that sounds like an in-your-face thing, but that's, that's our view of authority. If God said it, then he is the ultimate final authority. I believe what he said, and I'm gonna do what he said. Nevertheless, I think it's healthy to ask ourselves the question, are there tables in our lives that defy overturning? Let me put it another way. What am I doing that God does not want me doing? And what am I not doing that God wants me doing? Now, we ask these questions sometimes. I mean, we think, maybe you can think of something right now, or maybe you will in a few minutes. You think, yeah, there's something I know God wants me to do in my family life, at school, at work, whatever it is. And I, I just, I'm so tired. I've just been putting it off. I, I, I just don't have time to do it. Maybe I'll do it in a year. Maybe when I retire. You know, there's a lot of things. What I'm saying today is, is that I want you to take that up a notch and say, if you know that there's something God wants you to be doing and you're putting it off, what you're really doing is defying the authority of God in your life because he's saying, I want you to do this. And you're saying, eh, maybe, maybe someday I'll do that. And, and sometimes when we define a question the right way, it becomes a lot more serious. Uh, and, and so again, all of us works in progress there have to be things that God wants us to do we're not doing. There have to be things we're doing that God doesn't want us to do. We just need to trust him to show us. Again, not my business to show you. It's the Holy Spirit's business. One thing I will say is this. The Bible tells us that we are God's workmanship. We're God's workmanship. He's working on us. He's a craftsman that is molding and shaping and making us. 
Look around at creation. Even in its fallen condition, it is wondrous to behold, beautiful and mysterious. It reveals the glory of God. All it is, all the universe is, and I mean this, is a scaffolding or a stage upon which God can place you and I so that he can do what he really wants to do. It's like a sawhorse, if you were. Some of you guys, you do things, you get saw, before you make something, you say, well, I need a table or a sawhorse. I need something to work on. And so God says, I'm gonna create the universe because I wanna work on Gene and I need some kind of background to do that. Maybe you go to these concerts, you know, at stadiums, and they set up on the field, they put up those giant scaffoldings in the stage and the lights and all that, and then it's gone the next day. That's what the universe is, so that God can work on you because that's all he really cares about. And I know that's true, not just because the Bible says it's true, but because God says at the end of the current timeline, I'm gonna destroy creation and remake it, a new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwells righteousness. So it's, it's not something precious to him. It's just temporary so that you and I can come to Christ and can be made into the image of Jesus Christ. And so when, when I say things to myself and to you like, spend time with the Holy Spirit, are there things you're doing you shouldn't be doing, things you should be doing that you're not doing, uh, what needs to be overturned, it's not a big negative you know, hammer. It's like, hey, I'm submitting myself to the workman because I am his workmanship and I want to progress. I want to be more like Jesus today when I leave this place than when I came in. And there's no time like right now under the authority of the Bible and the Holy Spirit who's in this place to do that. Maybe you're not a Christian. I mentioned earlier the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wants to show you that you're a sinner in need of righteousness that only Jesus can provide. That there are no good works that you can do that can commend you to God, that can get you through the final judgment. But the Holy Spirit is saying, say, you're, yeah, you're a sinner and you need righteousness and it comes from Jesus Christ. If you will believe him by grace, you can receive it by faith. He's here to convict you, to open your heart and to lead you to faith in Jesus Christ. And so this is what this time after our service is about as we just wait on the Lord. It's a time for you to spend personal quality time with the Lord to either come to Christ or to grow in Christ. Let's pray.